When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Lowdown with Brave Mama. I am your host, Steph Thompson. And did you know that we are just past the halfway mark of season one already? I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for tuning in to every single person who has provided feedback. I have personally read every comment and I think it's amazing of what we're doing as a collective. And just to help other women, every time you download or you share or you leave a review on a podcast, what that does is it gives more women access to this information. So I think let's help other women feel less alone by jumping over to iTunes and either leaving a comment or clicking on those stars. And I get it, right? This is a really personal topic. And for some people, they don't wish to put their name to a comment. I totally respect that. Simply by clicking on those stars that you can see in iTunes, it does the same thing. It still puts this information in front of so many more women. So if you have time this week, I would encourage you and ask you to please do that. All right, so today I'm sitting down and having a chat with the great Lucy Bloom. She's the author of Get the Girls Out and Cheers to Childbirth, which is the book we're going to be focusing on in our conversation today. We're talking all things dads and birthing partners. And if you love a good Aussie accent, you're going to love listening to Lucy. This is why I've grabbed a cup of Madam Flavors Australian Morning Blend. Welcome, Lucy. It's so lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Yay. I've been looking forward to this one actually quite a lot because um, I met you at the uh, Mum Society when you were promoting your first book. And I was just in awe, not only the hair, because I would never be brave enough to have amazing hair like that, <laughs> but just your, <laughs> your whole aura is just so amazingly welcoming and warm and it was like I knew you already so to have you on the show is a real privilege thank you oh you're welcome it was a pleasure to meet you too (laughs) that was during like just before the last lockdown I think wasn't it yeah it was one of my oh yeah it was too yeah it was one of my last lives oh yeah it was the previous year that's right yeah 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 we just made it all right let's jump in so tell me lucy um tell me about lucy bloom the mum first because we're talking to a whole lot of mums in our audience and you're a mum tell us about you uh i think my parenting style is 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 referred to as affectionate neglect uh i i let my kids be very independent but they're older kids so i can they are nearly 18 
15 and 13. So they're all at the same high school at the moment. Um, I got divorced six years ago, so my kids were kind of forced to be pretty independent at that stage, moving between two houses and getting themselves off to school in the morning and that sort of thing. And that was actually a good thing for them. And they look back on that as a really good learning experience. But yes, I'm definitely um, <laughs> affectionately glad. Love you dearly, but get on with your life because I need to get on with mine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's what we are all kind of thinking on the inside, but are too scared to say for judgment, right? Yeah, I guess so. I get that's another thing, though. I I actually don't give a shit what anyone thinks of me, my parenting, my choices, my wild hair, anything. I actually don't care. So you you make you you make better decisions for you and your family when you when you leave anyone else's opinions far behind you the door yeah that's awesome um so obviously with three kids I can only assume that you had three different birthing experiences what were they like uh three very different but also three very similar so I had um a long boring tiring hospital birth with my first child and he paved the way I guess you know paved the way through that pelvic floor so that my second and birth second and third births were much more straightforward I figured after a hospital birth, there was nothing the hospital gave me that I didn't have at home. And the transfer from home to hospital actually slowed things right down. So when I came to birth for the second time, I decided on a home birth. And then that one's pretty spectacular. That, that, that birth story has become a bit famous. Yes, I she's do know 50, that one. I'm nodding and going yes because I've read it in your first book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, she, uh, yeah, she's 15 years old now and loves that story. But she was born in the middle of a party, so there were 100 people in my house. She, I had to, I just had to duck into the bathroom and have a baby. Um, so it was pretty wild. But she took only 45 minutes from first contraction to last. Uh, and she came rocketing out into her father's hands. But I do always say my first child paved the way for the second. He took a long time to come. <laughs> Hard work. Uh, then my third child, she was also born at home, but uh, we just didn't send out invitations. It was just like a pretty straight, <laughs> straightforward thing. So I was very fortunate that all my births were natural. There wasn't any intervention. By natural, I, I mean... There was no hospital or medical management. Um, there was no poking around. Um, I had no epidural or any, um, or any drugs, though I did beg for them the first time. And I remember the midwife saying, you're about to have your baby. And so, uh, and so I did. <laughs> so those are my births in a nutshell. Um, I tore pretty spectacularly with all three, which sucked. Nobody puts in their birth plan, geez, I'd love to tear. Nobody wants to tear, um, uh, but... I've always said that, you know, it, I actually, well, it's true. I didn't actually know that it had happened until after my baby was in my arms and someone was telling me I needed stitches. So, yeah, so, so that's um, helpful. Uh, you know, that, that's reassuring to new mums. That, they, that you couldn't actually feel it when it was at, at the time. Yeah, when it was actually happening, I couldn't feel a thing. There's so much other stuff going on. So, yeah, I had three uh, positive birth experiences, I would say. Yeah, good. And that's awesome. That's a really, um, that's a great story to tell, I think. 
you know, it's funny at the moment we're hearing a lot of so in social media people talking about different either really positive birth stories or quite traumatic negative birth stories and there's always a weigh-in on who who should be saying what, when and where and it's it becomes quite political, doesn't it? Oh, sort of. It's just like get a life. Like it's there's no bravery awards handed out for who had the worst birth. There's no um, trophies for who had the best. So as, as soon as women, st- honestly, it goes back to as soon as you stop caring what other people think, those conversations just, bleh, they just, you've got no time for that. And anyone who has time to weigh into that probably has some baggage they need to work through. If they're, if they're desperate for validation that their birth was the worst or the best, they've got issues. And that's probably not for you to solve. So just opt out, go for a walk, wash your hair, do something else. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm just processing. That's quite interesting. Um, I think I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'm going to tap into that a little bit, a little bit further on. I just want to talk about you a little bit more first because I know you've got so many amazing um, journeys and stories. So before mum, who was Lucy Bloom? Before mum, I was a businesswoman. So I ran a advertising agency and I was a, an agency creative and I loved that, but I, I had this weird idea that a lot of us have is that I had to wait till a convenient time to have children. And I figured that would be after I paid my house off or after I sold the ad agency, or it was just always out of my reach. But then I remember having lunch with some fr- distant friends, didn't even know them very well. And the mum said, there is no convenient time to have children. And it just, she said at the right time, penny dropped, and I thought, she's right. It'll always be out of my reach if I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And so uh, I think I was 29 when I was pregnant with my first. And uh, I could have done it way sooner, but had this idea that I had to work hard, build a business, earn lots of money. I mean, whichever way you decide to do it is the way you decide to do it. And I had my children, I had all my kids in my early 30s, and now I'm in my, God, I hate to say it, I'm in my late 40s now. I don't hate to say it because I actually love life at the moment. <laughs> life right now is awesome. I love being 40, what am I, 47. Um, so, you know, you just roll with the decisions you make. But prior to kids, I was a businesswoman. Yeah. Okay. And I, I know that you've done some amazing traveling and journeys with your work as well. Um, so I feel, yeah, I feel, when you just said that, I was like, wow, yeah, I the, the penny dropped. I think a lot of women are doing that now. Oh, I've got to get my career. I've got to be able to be 50% um, contributing to a relationship. I need to be having my own property and, and you know, doing it all. But then I also want to be a mum and it's a quite a, a struggle. Um, so have you ever struggled between those two of career woman and mum at the same time? Uh, yes, I certainly did when my kids were little. But we worked out the best balance was that Uh, me and their dad both worked part-time. So we each worked four days a week, which gave us us a a business day at home. And then we had care for the kids the rest of the time. So working full-time, I found was too hard going. It's too hard going full stop, let alone with three kids. Far out, we weren't built for that shit. So we worked out that when the kids were little, we needed to work part-time. And then we had care for for the days when we were both uh, on the job. And then once our youngest was in school, we could gradually ease our way back into full-time work. 
But that was still really hard too because uh, full-time work doesn't allow for school holidays. Um, I mean, it still kicks us in the ass now, but I have a much more flexible life. So kids tend to spend all school holidays with me. So it, yeah. it works. But it, yeah, it's hard. It's a major juggle. You're trying to live two lives at once and you do both of them a bit shit. <laughs> so as long as you can accept, you'll just be a bit shit. That's okay. Better than totally shit. <laughs> it's that saying that, you, you know, women have to go to work like they're not mums, but then they have to come home like they don't have a job. Yeah, but those are expectations you put on yourself, I guess. I guess the workplace can put it on you, but I see I've always been the boss. I have never had a boss say to me, no, you have to work late or no, you can't stay home with that sick child because I've, I've always been the boss and, you know, I've, I've offered a flexible workplace since before it was cool. So, um, yeah, so I don't have that added pressure from a boss, I guess. Yeah, I don't know how they do it. And isn't it funny how you just – I just thought then that – we talk about how it's so hard to work and there's no school holidays and we know that that system's broken, but we haven't been able to change it ever. Yeah, that's because um, men run the, comp- run the country and men have wives who handle all that for them. Who don't have to prob- probably work full time, probably. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Blame the patriarchy. But we're getting there, you know, pay parental leave and... Um, there is definitely a, a move towards a more balanced family expectation. Um, my, my husband certainly never for one second thought that the pressure of family landed in my lap. No way. If anything, he probably did a little bit more of the domestics than me because I was more senior than him. So in, in, in the work sense, um, but times are changing and it comes down to what you settle for. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And it was lucky, I guess. Well, not lucky that he was able to to be there to to take that role. Well, we were similar here um, at home where we did a, rever- a reversal where Tom was at, my husband was at home with the baby. And it's so funny. He would go down to the park and the mums would be like, oh, you're doing such an amazing you're job. You're babysitting. <laughs> yeah. Pushing in the pram. Can I help you? But yet, you know, a woman's got her arms full and another woman's like, yeah, she's a mum. She knows what she's doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need to just go easier on each other and stop making assumptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely uh, a good tip there. Let's talk about, now we're talking about dad, let's talk about this amazing book. (laughs) Ah, I love it. Cheers to Childbirth, A Dad's Guide to Childbirth Support. So I know you're the author of two books, but I want to talk about this one in particular for dads who are listening today. So um, what made you want to write this book for dads? I was working as a doula. And I went, went to my very first birth. So I was still in doula training, went to my very first birth. And I noticed that while the dad wanted to be involved as much as he could and be as helpful as he could, he cocked it up from start to finish. This poor guy, nicest dude ever. Just could he, he just stood in the wrong place, said the wrong things. Like he just stuffed it up. And I thought there's a, there's a gap in here where we're not explaining to men what's expected of them and how a woman behaves in labor so that they don't freak out too because you know women can behave and sound different and all that sort of stuff i thought no one's explaining this to men properly so that's when i created the world's first childbirth education program for men and it's run in pubs all over australia 
So that was way back in 2004. My first child was only 10 months old. And then um, then I licensed it and it went national and it was incredible and it still is going strong. It's called Beer and Bubs. And But then I realized there was definitely a market for a book because um, I was constantly hearing from men who didn't live near a pub that was hosting a Beer and Bubs session every month. So, uh, so I then I wrote Cheers to Childbirth and that meant I could really delve into more detail. Uh, I could bring in the opinions of obstetricians and midwifery academics. Not that it's an overly academic book, it's just accurate. Um, and yeah, it, I, it's really important because I, um, I'm a writer and a doula. I'm not a, I'm not a medical practitioner. So I just made sure opinion was attributed to the right clever people. And then I made it really fun and readable. And then I chopped it full of fabulous birth stories from men because no one asks men what the experience was like for them. No one dares because there's this stupid idea that men just get in the way and men just want to watch the footy and men ask for the, you know, the extra stitch and stupid shit like that. So I wanted to blow all of that stuff out of the water and I wanted to um, and, and I, I noticed when I was interviewing men that they were dying to tell me their version of events and that when you talk to a man about the birth story he has a very different picture to the the birthing mother because she's a cocktail of hormones and has a different totally different memory of the event so it's pretty cool to talk to both of them and I'll never forget interviewing Danny Green world champion boxer and he cried about the births of his babies and that's when I thought, far out. This is, I'm, I've, I've discovered something here. Someone's going to ask these guys and give them a chance to debrief. And then that book has gone strong for a decade. And last year I republished a second edition, partly because I noticed, I could have just reprinted it because people keep reading, so that book keeps selling. But I reprinted it because I noticed it lacked diversity, that over the last decade my diversity goggles have developed. And when I look at anything, it shits me when it's all white people. And I know I'm known for poking the media when there's all white people on screen or all white people as speakers. And I looked at my book, I had one Chinese dad, which was Charlie Teo, the surgeon, and the rest, all white dudes. It's like, what is wrong with me? So I, I did a whole bunch of new interviews and now there's fabulous diversity. There's two same-sex couples. Um, and I'm very, very proud of that book and it keeps changing people's lives, which is a wonderful thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. What would you think would be, like obviously people need to go and read it, but what would be that a key message for dads from your book? The number one key message, which is also the number one sales point, to be honest, is if you know the right things to do, you can make your partner's birth easier and faster. And if you do all the wrong things, you will be personally responsible for making the birth slower and harder. So I used to say that at the beginning of workshops and I'd have like 30 guys and they all look like bunnies in the headlights. And I'd say that to them and they'd be like, holy hell, I can actually cock this thing up? What? And then I'd have their full attention. And the rest of the book is all about what to do, what to say, what not to say, what never to say, what not to touch, you know, when to get the hell out of the way, when to come out fighting and fight for your partner, all that stuff. So that's the key thing. You can actually make the birth easier and faster. I love that. I lo especially that last point about you knowing when to step in. So I'll share with you, obviously, um, 
our first birth was very traumatic and my husband and I, we went to the birthing classes. We then went to private birthing classes and we thought we read all the books, the general books that you see on the shelf, not yours, of course, wish we did. Um, He didn't know when to advocate for me because he has no medical background. He didn't know things were not going right until they really ballsed up. At that point, I just remember this one, it's giving me goosebumps. I just remember this one instance of um, looking at his eyes and he looked at me and he's like, holy hell, what the hell? I, I want to say, F- episode, but he, <laughs> out of his we were, depth. We were petrified and we were looking at each other to know the answer. Neither of us did and we're like, shit. So at that moment, I really wished he would have been better equipped for him to know what to do because I didn't actually expect him to know what to do either because I didn't know what to do. We were putting all of our uh, trust and faith into our medical team. And you're not in the best position to bat for yourself because, you know, you're in labour. So, yeah, there's an entire chapter called How to Advocate for the Birthing Mother and it it gives them what they need to know, when to actually step in and just go steady on. I need a bunch of answers here. When to know when, you'll know when it looks like a medical emergency because you're actually running to theatre. <laughs> if people are just cruising in and out of your room, there's no medical emergency and you can stop them, slow them down, ask some questions, get real answers. If they give you jargon, ask them to simplify it. Play dumb, get, it, get this right in your head. Um, so yes, there's a big chunk on that because that's what men need to feel um, feel like they have the confidence to do even in the room that you're in get I say get to know it open all the cupboards and drawers know where stuff is so that you're not feeling like an alien in somebody in a hotel room you've never been in you know where everything is you can find stuff unpack all your bags so you're not asking the birthing mother where her lip uh, chapstick is you know 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 the environment really well so that you can look after her better yeah, absolutely. Oh gosh, oh, it's just it's, I've just got all these flashbacks of us trying to work out where are we going to put the candles and where are we going to put the like they were the important things. <laughs> well, you know why you focus on that? It's because you can control it. So you can't control a funky cervix that's taking its time, but you can damn well control what flavor that candle is. I remember once arriving at a birth, I was supporting a woman and I went to get her, I think it was Vaseline or something, something out of her toiletries bag that she asked for. And I looked in her toiletries bag and sometime that afternoon before labour had really ramped up, she'd done all her waxing. And her waxing strips with all her pubes in them were in her toiletries bag. And I looked at it and giggled because I thought that was one thing she could control. My lady garden is going to look fantastic. So we do focus on those things because we can and it just makes us feel like we're doing something. So that's okay. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So do you think women should be reading this book too, just as much as men? Say that again. Do you think women should be reading your book as well, just as much as men yeah, and your dads? Yeah, and they do. So I've I've discovered, I've modelled all the analytics and it's women who buy the book. So it's about 85% women who buy it. They read it first to make sure we're not telling their partner something dumb. And then what tends to happen is their partner hears them snort laughing all the time because it is a really fun book. And it, like, there's some really grotty things about childbirth, so we might as well laugh about them. And then once husband realizes she's enjoying this book and it's got a hot dude on the cover, he goes, give it here. And then, 
and and then men read it or sometimes couples read it together which is nice like a chapter a night is a cool way to get through it yeah right that's a good tip um yeah I, I like I said I think I wish I would have seen something I've never actually read something in our experience leading up to birth that was just so raw and honest um and to that I obviously you know I had a quite a traumatic birth but in in the conversations we've had about childbirth I do feel like you've taught me a lot and by that I mean when I wrote my book about it and I shared it with you and you had said to me I don't actually think your book is for pregnant women at first I was like oh what hang on that's what I'm trying to do I'm trying to create the book that we didn't have before but then we had that level of respect where you said not because I don't think it's a good book but because I think women can be really vulnerable and it's too late they almost need to read it before like or it might be for medical professionals and midwives and every obstetrician in Australia should read your book every midwife every urologist yeah and I think um it was one of those moments where I had to do a lot of self-reflection and go, oh, okay, right. And it was just a really, it was a really big learning learning curve for me. So I wanted to thank you for that, actually. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Pregnant women are vulnerable because they don't yes. know what they're in for and it could be anything. And and I there's a section in the book about horror stories and how men need to bat them off because now's not the time to be consuming childbirth horror stories. A lot of them are highly exaggerated for the entertainment value and I'm not suggesting yours is at all Um, but women preparing for birth need to prepare um, with confidence and um, and and to go in knowing that their body is going to give it a red hot go and that their partner's right by their side fear will actually be counterproductive and actually will produce the hormones that slow their labor down so we do have to kind of put pregnant women in a nice warm bubble and tell them that, that they're going to be okay. And so I, I do think your book is, is really good and an exceptionally important story to tell, especially in the West, because this doesn't happen here very often or not as often as in countries where there's very little obstetric care. And so surgeons here aren't very good at fixing these problems. The best surgeons come for these injuries are all in Africa. Yeah. So yeah. The, tell um, us a bit more about that because you know a lot about that, and I think that's you know that's one of those amazing journeys that you have. Can you just and then I'm going to come back to the trauma thing in a sec. But yeah, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So for a long time, I uh, was a volunteer, and then I was the CEO of a charity which funded a network of hospitals and a midwifery school in Ethiopia. So that uh, whole life of mine taught me huge amounts about obstetric injury, a particular injury called obstetric fistula. Uh, And that's really common in um, underdeveloped countries where women don't have access to healthcare. Now your injury was caused by intervention, am I right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so your injury was caused by intervention. Their injuries, very similar to yours, present very similarly, but they're just caused, they're simply caused by a baby's head is stuck in the birth canal for too long. Like we're talking 10 days. And these women are in labor like for three to seven to 10 days. And if they cannot expel that baby, they will die of, um, of septicemia. So mum you're talking about, aren't you? The mum you're talking about will die. The mum will die and the baby's already dead. 
by then. Yes, it's, I think it's only 7% of babies survive a, a birth that causes a fistula injury. So very, very high death rate with these bulbs. They just get stuck in the birth canal, no oxygen, they die, but their head causes the injury. So yes, I know a lot about that. And it's interesting that because it's so prevalent there, the surgeons are so experienced at it. And if you want to become a fistula surgeon, the best place in the world to, um, to train for that is in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Um, in fact, I, I remember when I was CEO, there was a Canadian woman who just could not solve her fistula injury. And she went all the way to Ethiopia and it was fixed in one operation because they just do them all day, every day, 10 patients a day. They're all different because the bladder and the vagina and the bowel, they're all different shapes and every injury is a different shape. But the techniques are, are, are similar and um, it's amazing work. But there is a surgeon in Queensland and she's the one I recommend uh, who, go, who spends three months a year in Africa. So she has the most fistula experience in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, we're so we have so many choices, and yet it means you know our surgeons are really good at boob jobs, but not very good at fistula. <laughs> what does that say about us? Yeah, and I do find too that they, there's a whole lot of red tape too that stops us from being able to do certain things here in Australia, which is what I've learned along the journey. Disappointingly, um, so I don't know if Africa is very different, but no um, way. There, there's none of that kind of red tape. You rock up, we'll operate. Um, you know, the, the patients are, are almost always illiterate and so they can't even sign consent forms or read them. So then um, they have to watch a video and once they've watched the video and they understand, they put a thumbprint on their consent form. It's just, a, it is a different world um, and the red tape around that kind of thing is non-existent. I, I've, be, I've just read um, Heartbreaking the Himalayas actually by Dr. Ray Hodgins. He goes to the Himalayas and does prolapse repairs he said he's got women walking to him for four days to see him and he kind of does it in the battery torch light thing and I'm like I need to see you but he's based here in uh, Sydney right or you know New South Wales he's fully booked for two years his books are closed this kind of leads to my next thing so I I know before you said it's um, the birth trauma rate is on the increase in the damage during childbirth is getting there's more and more women that it's happening to for a surgeon like that to be booked out for two years what where are we going wrong <laughs> we just don't have the, the the practice and the specialty here um hospitals um are becoming or obstetricians are becoming uh, an everyday birth event when they really should be just focusing on the very tricky um, cases and then increasing their specialty in things like fistula rather than catching babies that could be easily and better off caught by a midwife. So I think it's that in Australia we are, we are gradually marching closer to a much more medically managed form of birth and we shouldn't. It should be midwifery care. New Zealand's got it totally sorted. Midwifery care and you only see an obstetrician if you're a really tricky case. Uh, makes things so how do you know so how would you know you're a tricky case like for us we were we were midwifery care with the first birth and um I loved it I loved getting to know my midwife and having that trust and relationship with her but when shit hit the fan and it, it, it wasn't obviously um going to plan 
then we didn't have access to an obstetrician because there wasn't one there. They got like a registered doctor to come in and help. Um, I don't know. Like it's, it's yeah. So I what an, I'm trying, an obstetrician yeah. should have been called earlier for you. And good old hindsight always gives us these perlers. Um, an obstetrician should have been on site much sooner. And it sounds like you should have had a cesarean. And, and you know, we don't know that until um, after the call is made. Sometimes they have to decide it comes down to there's no time to get you to theatre, get you anaesthetised and get this baby out compared to let's just do a forceps delivery and the baby will be here in the next 60 seconds. So they are constantly making those decisions and registrars are chronically um, overworked and fatigued. So it's not an ideal system. No, to be fair, I do honestly feel it was a massive systemic issue. I've never kind of blamed my midwife or the midwifery care practice to that extent as to what why things happened to me. But I felt like, so I know that you've you've just said that you've had um, three very quite straightforward vaginal births. And for me, who has not had it, I do feel like the the books I read and the ideology about having, basically, I was told if I open my vagina like a lotus flower, baby will come out. And I now feel like I was naive to believe that because I thought, yeah, okay, I can do that. Sure. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, like I felt like the information we were taught in that midwifery, like I remember asking about a cesarean Lucy and saying, well, what is it? And just being very dismissed and said, don't worry, you won't need to worry about it. Oh, that's no good. You can yeah. breathe your baby down if you've got the right Oh, that sounds like hypnobirthing. Uh, I did do something similar privately, but this was actually told by the midwifery care practice. And so that's why I think... I felt blindsided, like, how did I not know that could happen? Or, or, you know, and I think a lot of women who have birth trauma say the same thing. And I, I will go back to this because I, in your book, I think it was on page six when it said, you know, traumatic birth stories, um, don't listen to horror stories. To me, Tom and I didn't actually tell anyone for two years. We kept it our secret because I thought I failed natural childbirth, that I just really fucked it up couldn't do it right you know he felt he couldn't support me right and so we honestly didn't tell anyone because we're like oh god we were embarrassed yeah that's no good you need to debrief and I'm sure you have or maybe you still have more to do and maybe it's a lifelong thing but you've got to debrief that and you didn't let anyone down and those expectations may have been created for you around, you know, breathing your baby out. That's a very hypnobirthing thing to say. And I do cover in my book that that's not going to, that's actually not going to get your baby out very fast. That's what I love about your book. It's yeah. Honest. And you can waste, you know, the, the hour or two hours you're given to push your baby out. If you spend that time breathing, next thing they will, they will be threatening you with the salad tongs. You've actually got to push really hard to get a baby out, especially the first time. Um, Actually, so, mm-hmm. sorry, I was just going to say there, um, there has to be some practicality and reality in the education that women and men have before childbirth. It can't all be lotus flowers, candles and breathing. That will get you through the first one centimetre of dilation and then you, need, then you need more information, then you need more tactics, then you need, uh, and, and plenty of births you'll need 
an epidural. 30% of them you will need a cesarean and so for a midwife to say oh you won't need that is um, a very poor duty of care in my thinking. Uh, and that's why there's a whole chapter on cesarean in my book because and I say right at the start you might not be planning one but one might be planning you. <laughs> and I love that because I did have in my mind that cesarean was the naughty corner that if you had a cesarean then you were not going to be a real mum like that whole breastfeeding bottle feeding horribleness I had all that in my head and being an A-type personality I thought well I don't want to fail so I don't want a cesarean but now looking back if someone would have said to me Stephanie these are some risk factors for you we think we just need to start the conversation so that if something was to happen but then People are like, oh, well, we don't want to scare. We don't want to put fear into women. But you know what? I was freaking scared anyway. I was so scared of the unknown anyway. Just that no one no one ever let me talk through that. I'm pretty sure that if you can say, oh, I'm scared about this and, and have seven months to talk through it, by the end you, your fears will probably be a lot less. I was really, um, really fortunate. I went on a pregnancy retreat when I was about 30 weeks pregnant and I met a woman on that retreat, the host of that retreat, and she was the first person who'd ever told me positive birth, birth stories, birth wow. stories that were cool, that were relaxed, that were at home, that were in birth pools, that were just part of life rather than a, a full-on a medical event. And she had a really, she didn't try, but she had a really profound effect on me. I thought, okay, it doesn't actually have to be what you see in the movies with someone screaming their guts out and... For two um, minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. So unrealistic, hey. Um, so, yes, maybe women do need counselling to, to debrief on some of that prenatal fear. First birth, oh, I had it full on. Well, I actually didn't want to have my own children. I was so desperately afraid of childbirth and talked to my husband out of it for eight years. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then he wouldn't have them. So it was up to me. And so, and then imagine if I hadn't, and I've got these three humans, and the first birth was tough. It was hard work. It was like climbing um, Everest. But the second and third were were really um, were really f can I say this fun? They were actually fun, ferocious but fun. They were at home. They were cool. It was okay. Yeah, it was, yeah. Well, especially the, the second one, um, like the middle child. Sorry, um, you know, for the for the first time, I got um, Aviva to write the forward for my book, and she was the first person I'd ever met who said to me. Darling, it's called labour for a reason. You have to work. Babies don't just fall out. You actually have to help them and you, you're, you've got a really important job. And I was like, how did I not? Yeah, she's great, Aviva. Very straightforward. No mucking around. We actually met at a birth conference a hundred years ago. <laughs> she's unreal. <laughs> she was crouching on the ground showing me how I should be doing it, you know, getting the body. You know, she's that dancer. And she, I was like, wow, I wish I'd met you and I'd wish I'd known this. And so I think this is the whole reason why we're saying it today because I think there's a whole lot more to the book, you know, what, what Kaz cooks, what you're expecting, what to expect when you're expecting. There's so much more to, oh, hers to is, it than Hers that. is called Up the Duff. Oh, up the duff, yeah. yeah. What's, what's the one, that, what to expect when you're expecting yeah, that Yeah, that's vibe? that old American one that's got nothing of value in it. Um, <laughs> up the duff is more a pregnancy 
manual. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, yes. But it's got like nothing about, even in our um, websites and some of the pregnancy websites, the Victorian government doesn't even include the word epidural, uh, sorry, forceps or uh, episiotomy. Episiotomy is missing. And then when the, when my surgeon, when the um, registrar said, I'm going to do an episiotomy, I was like, oh, what? What, what are you doing down there now, right now, as you're cutting? What is that? And what, it, you know, so I just think, wow, that's why I love your book so much is because you go into, that's what it is. This is the reason why you might need it. And that's okay. You know? Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. This is, it's, it's quite, um, oh yeah, it's quite, it's quite huge, isn't it? Childbirth. It's really quite <laughs> profound. It is definitely <laughs> huge. Anyone who says it's not is childless. <laughs> like it, yeah it's huge because it's also this marker for this next step of your life but it's it's just oh it is a big deal there's no no two ways about it yeah do you think there's any way we can be uh trying to reduce childbirth trauma or things that like happened to me during my childbirth um at all or is it just one of the things that we have to just accept that that's just what it is I think there'll always be a percentage of childbirth trauma. There are things that happen that you can't predict that will that will always turn out badly. Things like placenta previa, placenta abruption. You know, a woman can die really quickly with a placenta abruption and no one can see that kind of thing coming. And it's tragic and and all we can do is research what triggers those things. Um, but as far as everyday care goes... I think you touched on it earlier. If couples are better prepared and they know what their rights are, uh, they will be able to respond better when there are choices given to them. So you may have had choices earlier on before it became a medical emergency and he was like really whipping this baby out fast. And, um, and, and it's making those choices on the fly that will be, be that you'll be more confident to do when you, you have more clarity on on your choices. That's our biggest problem. We get choice paralysis. We have so many choices. It's not funny. All the way up to that point where um, where it becomes a medical emergency, and then it's pretty much hands off. You just have to back off and let them do what they do because then it's just they 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 were about saving a baby's life when that doctor made those choices that day. But funnily enough, do you know what? When we were obviously went back and questioned all of that because um, I was left, as you said, you need to debrief and process this. I was told that there was nothing wrong with my baby. She wasn't in any distress. She was totally fine. So I was left left baffled going, well, how come we went from candles and one midwife to five people in the room staring at me in legs in stirrups? That doesn't, it doesn't match the story of nothing's wrong. It, and what was the answer you were given? Um, if the baby wasn't in distress, why was there an episiotomy and a forceps delivery? Because she was posterior. Oh, oh sorry. It was very dismissed. It was very much like, well, it was that or a cesarean. But no one gave me the choice at the time. No one talked to me about ah, that. And so they the didn't time. give you the choice. No, there was no. It was literally, I remember, Lucy, the scissors being so sorry they yeah, did it back you don't want to see them do you you do not want to see those scissors it was like I just need to do this little cut is what she called it she didn't even call it a episiotomy and I said oh okay well because to be honest at the time I just wanted to meet my baby alive 
I couldn't give, I didn't know I could be damaged. I couldn't give a shit about me. I just wished for this baby for five years and nine months. I just wanted her here. I couldn't care less at the time. So of course you kind of just like, whatever it takes, if there's something wrong, get her to me. Um, but yeah, to hear that later was a bit like, what? Well, why did we go through all of that? But I don't think we're ever really going to get answers. And I've accepted that because it happens so often. I was actually just told by the hospital that it was normal. Everything that happened in that room that day was normal. Me being wheeled out in a wheelchair to my car the next day to go home, all normal. So that to me was like, mm, you know what? I can't let this be the normal for Elsie when she goes to have a baby because my life is totally um, being turned upside down. I can't walk or stand for longer than five minutes without being in pain because all my organs are falling out of my vagina opening. That can't be normal for my girl or any other girl. It's got to change, you know? Like that's, that's my voice now and that's my plight is to make sure. And part of that, people always say, well, well, what do you mean? What does that look like? And I say, well, you've got nine months before you're going to birth the baby. A one-hour birthing class ain't going to cut it. <laughs> At, you know, month three, maybe go and chat to an obstetrician, find out what a cesarean is first because when I actually found out what they were, I was petrified. Um, then go and talk to a counsellor if you've got fear to work through that fear. Yeah, that's go excellent meet, advice. Meet a doula. Talk to a midwife, um, you know, all of these things over the nine-month period rather than at the 11th hour. It's too late to take it in. And you hadn't heard of doulas before uh, you no. gave birth? Right. No, I didn't know till after when my cousin had one and even within our circle of women in our family, it was a bit like, why do you need that? What, you've got a midwife. You've got your mum. What do you need? And now I understand the value of yeah, them. Yeah, knowledgeable so my, support. Um, Correct. My second birth, I, and I think this is just not, mm, what people do. You, you have an experience and then you kind of run the opposite direction when it's traumatic. So I ran towards an obstetrician this time and I said to him, I'm so scared with this second birth. I need to have a cesarean. He talked to me around it and said, I think your a second vaginal birth would be really quite healing for you and I'll support you with that. If at any point baby looks like he's getting stuck like your first, I would be happy to support you. Or if mentally you're not okay, I will help you with a cesarean. But Steph, this is what a cesarean is. And he went through everything and I was like, oh, actually. That's, that's a good obstetrician giving you that advice. He was amazing. He's so good. Um, so then, the, and he was right. I was scared that the bladder was going to like plug the hole and the baby was not going to come out and everything was going to literally fall out of me. But this is what I mean. Like, and as you said, you keep asking the questions until you comprehend and get the answers that you know. So he, my obstetrician explained it to me. Well, I'm going to lay you on your left side. Your bladder will fall away. We can empty your bladder manually and then the baby will come out. I was like, I can picture that. Yeah. I can do that. And you know what? <laughs> in three hours, I did that with him. And it was a very healing process to be able to do that the second time. And I think we, like when he, my son was born, both my husband and I cried our eyes out. We're like, oh, my God. Yeah. I, think, I think that's what childbirth is meant to be like. <laughs> I'm so glad you had that experience. Yes. 
Yeah, me too. And you know what? what I See, this is another thing too. A lot of women who have birth trauma to the extent that, that we went through, I don't think they talk about it a lot publicly. So I refer to, so as you mentioned, there's horror stories about, you know, little old lady down the road says, oh, this, this, it'll take 50 hours and all of that. But then there's the next level of our horror story where we don't see it as a horror story. We see it as horrible. Yes but not glorified because um, it was what really happened. And that's what I mean. We didn't tell anybody. So many women contact me very similar and say, the same thing happened to me. I don't know. I don't think I can have any more children. And I get to share that experience with them and say, I think, you know, with the with a, a person in care that you can trust, you can, I did do it. And if you wanted to try that, you could do that too. Um, you know, it's something that probably at least twice a week I'm contacted with women saying, how do you have another birth? How do you fall pregnant with a prolapse and you can't have another sex? You know, like it's, <laughs> it's one of those things um, that it gets. It's very underground is what I'm trying yeah, to say. I hear you. I understand. Well, you're doing a really important thing. Really important. I think so and I you know I've always got that in my mind that the end goal is so that when our girls and your girls if they choose to have babies they are equipped and they don't get blindsided and they do understand that a whole range of things can happen and they have the right support there with them. Yeah and they are free to ask the questions and keep asking them and go but I don't understand. I still don't understand. Please make it simpler. (laughs) Yeah I think you're doing a really important thing. Thank you. Um, so I think how do we, I think you've probably already answered this, anyway. how does someone best support their pregnant partner? So if someone's pregnant now and they're going through similar things like we did about my major fear was I was going to miscarry, that my baby was going to die. I didn't even think about the labor part yet. But so how does a partner support their pregnant loved one right now? Yeah, you have to remember that they are a cocktail of scary hormones. If, and I always say to men, if you think women are unpredictable, just you wait. <laughs> You've got to accept that pregnancy hormones are, um, are pretty epic and she'll do strange things like um, her sense of smell will be super heightened, so your BO will become enemy number one and she'll seem unreasonable, but you know what? That's her protecting her baby. And you just have to become a really good listener. And only when a pregnant woman starts to get herself so wound up that she's making idiotic decisions do you need to step in. I'm the kind of person that just really needed my, my partner just to tell me everything would be all right. And I still, I still respond well to that to this day. Just cuddle me and tell me everything's going to be all right. I will believe you. <laughs> so they just need reassurance, be a really good listener. Get alongside her, like read a book that's for men. Read the stories to her because the birth stories in there are funny and uh, interesting, really varied. Uh, and, yeah, you've just got to be a great listener. Okay, I love that. That's really good. And I, I think it's hard for men to know what to do. They don't know what they don't know. Or partners. I'm saying men and partners. You know what I mean. I, I mean, do know what you mean. It's mainly men. Who's partnering a pregnant person. Yeah, definitely. Um, so where is there a best place to go for childbirth education then? I know we mentioned calm, uh, calm birth and hypnobirth and all of that before. Is there one place where women and partners can go to have an unbiased view on childbirth? 
I think the best place is an online education called Birthbeat. It's um, created by a midwife who works out of Tamworth um, and that that's a, a international platform but it obviously has an Australian um, side, a, a twist to it because she's like this blonde hair, blue eyed Aussie chick, she's unreal and Birthbeat is really great, unbiased, naturally leaning because the less intervention you know you can avoid um, usually the better but certainly very unbiased as far as your choices go. That's really good and it's online so you can just, you can do it together and you, you're not there with a bunch of awkward couples and you, um, and you can watch it at your pace. Yeah, and then, and then also always read Cheers to Childbirth because that's bent towards the dad. Every other book on earth is bent towards the woman. She's got resources coming out of her ears and he's got nothing. That's all he's got. So those two together. Okay. I love it. Um, so um, what would you like to see for your daughters when they're ready to birth babies? If they choose to. Yeah, I'm always doing the if. You know, I never want to put pressure on my kids. to. I'm not one of these women. When are you going to make me a grandmother? I just think that's the worst kind of pressure you could ever put. I don't even expect my kids to get married. You know, whatever you want to do, just, you know, have a good time. Um, well, my girls know that I have this background in birth. And they certainly know their birth stories are pretty epic. And so we've had lots of conversations where they've said to me, oh, I'm not worried about childbirth. I just know you'll be there for me, <laughs> which is nice. Yeah, um, and just the other day, actually, the party baby asked me how I managed childbirth pain without drugs. She was like, how do you do it? And so I just explained some of the techniques where you, um, you confuse the nerve pathways and you, you engage the senses and explained to her what I did. You know, Dad got me a backpack and I was bouncing on a bouncy ball and I had this shaker. I said, you know that bowl full of shakers on top of the shelf? I had one of those shakers shaking in my ear just to, just to give me something to concentrate on. So I want for my girls to have uh, the, choices, um, the choices available to them so that they can have good medical care if they need it and not if they don't. Um, most of all, I hope they just have a really epic partner because I'd hate to have kids with a dickhead. Wouldn't that suck? <laughs> a really good partner uh, and, uh, and choices so they've got the care they need if they need it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so tell us, where do we find your books, actually, especially Cheers to Childbirth? Yeah, that's really easy to find, cheerstochildbirth.com.au. Uh, if you, and even if you just Google Cheers to Childbirth, you, you'll find me, find my book. It's really easy to find. And then my next book, which is my memoir, that tells a lot more about my time in Ethiopia and also health centres and maternity care in Cambodia as well. Uh, that's called Get the Girls Out. And that same thing, just Google Get the Girls Out. You'll find it. I'm easy to find. <laughs> that's really good, Lucy. Tell us what's on the cards for your next venture slash adventure. Um, there's always something on the cards. I've just finished a novel and I've never written a novel before, so that was fun. When I say finished, I actually need to uh, rework the first half because I got by the second half I was totally in my stride and I need to go back and kind of re-stride the first half because I'm really happy with it, the second half at least. Uh, so that'll be coming out sometime in the next few months. Um, and I do a lot of speaking, so I speak at events 
all over the world. Um, you'd think that COVID would have killed that off, but it actually hasn't. It's made it a bigger business for me because people are more accepting of, of virtual presenters. So I can present in Panama in the morning and Hobart in the afternoon. And, <laughs> and it's a lot less giving because I love a live audience. I love, it gives me such an endorphin rush. Uh, and so I miss the live audiences, but, um, but business is busy because of uh, good old Zoom. Yeah, great. If only we all bought shares in Zoom. Before I know. <laughs> I know some people think they're behind it, behind the pandemic. <laughs> Zoom invented it. Oh, look, it's been such a delight talking with you today. A real honour. and um, My pleasure. For your novel and make sure you keep us posted when it's, when it's up and ready. I and... will. It's called The Book of Men. Oh, you've got a title. Oh, yeah. wow. You just gave us a secret. That's awesome. <laughs> the Book of Men. Cool. Yeah, it's a bit saucy. Okay. I'm liking this. Not in a Fifty Shades kind of way, in a far more adventurous, funny, real way. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay. Isn't Lucy just amazing? She is not only fun to talk to, but her stories fascinate me. She has been through amazing journeys in her life. And if you haven't yet read Get the Girls Out, I recommend you do it because that's how we've initially connected. And it's just nice to be inspired by people who have done things very different to you. And it's, um yeah, definitely just go, go and read her books. You'll be inspired. I can promise you that. So remembering that we are supporting new parents for the entire month of November and we had 10 new parent care gift packs to give away and these include some Huggies nappies, wipes and one of those really cute nappy wallets, some of Madame Flavor's deeply relaxing tea and Pinky McKay's booby bickies which are amazing if you're breastfeeding or not. And this is one of the last weeks to go into the draw so you can enter in the show notes. If you're listening from Podbean, there'll be a direct link. But otherwise, if you're on iTunes or another, your favorite podcast place to hang out, you can also find the link over on our Instagram page, which is at Brave Mama. And if you go to the bio underneath, there's a little link tree link, click on that, and then you'll be able to enter. So good luck. Now, next week, we are really lucky to be sitting down and grabbing a cuppa to have a chat with the original founder of the Australasian Birth Trauma Association, Dr. Elizabeth Skinner. Her research into women's health will absolutely fascinate you. Be sure to tune in and bye for now. Brave, my-